welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with Luke Perry, a graduate student in the architecture department on incremental housing. back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. You're tuned to CalX, UC Berkeley Student Radio 90.7. I'm your host, Emily Ellers, a graduate student myself. This week, we'll be speaking with Luke Perry, a graduate student in the architecture department who has just returned from a year traveling the world and studying incremental housing. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thanks for having me, Emily. Can you begin by laying out your work? What is incremental housing? Well, it's sort of what I would consider something that's more determined by process. Um, thinking about the house, maybe how physical space can respond to the lives and the dynamic nature in which people live. So basically that means a house that changes over time and is designed intentionally or unintentionally to be built in parts or increments. Mm-hmm. Who has it? Who wants it? <laughs> oh, everybody's wanting it. It's the, it's the new thing, man. I'm telling you what. <laughs> Actually, most of the world has it, um, just not much around here. It's pretty interesting. It falls under a lot of context, but in, in, in most of the world where people are not living a lot of money, they do what they can to provide shelter for themselves in most cases. And the reality is there's no, no other way to do it besides sort of piece by piece, poco a poco kind of thing. So, And I quickly found out it is pretty much absolutely everywhere. Well, where did you go? Uh, I think I hit 22 countries. Started with some very intensive research in New Zealand, uh, but then worked my way through Asia, uh, to China, uh, India, and Bangladesh. Then looped over into Africa. Spent some time in Kenya, through Egypt, and then Turkey, through Europe, Scandinavia, and then finished up in South America. Actually, I finished up in the U.S. looking at a couple things, but uh, my last leg was in South America. Well, what did you find, Luke? Can you speak about the differences between incremental housing in Kenya versus incremental housing in, say, Chile or Chile versus New Orleans? What did you find? Sure. Well, um, you know, shelter provides basic needs for everybody for the most part. People have a need to have a roof over their head for, you know, basic protection from the elements. You know, it should provide security for them for whatever context they need. They should have adequate access to light, ventilation, all those kind of things. And, you know, everybody has a basic need for that. But, of course, every place is different and cultures and uh, and families and traditions and cultural expectations and standards are all different everywhere as well. So, so fundamentally, there are a lot of common threads around the world. People all... They want a chance to better themselves and improve their lives. And so one of the things I was interested in is how can the home actually facilitate that? Can it increase agency? Can it help people stake a better claim to the cities, Um, which unfortunately in many cases are becoming sort of more exclusive and more difficult to stake a claim in. But at the same time, the, um, the scale at which sort of people are finding ways to solve their own problems, uh, unfortunately at a necessity, um, is, is, is actually quite extraordinary, but not to over-romanticize the issue in any way. So I think here in somewhere like New Orleans, um, you know, we have very structured systems, sort of regulations, uh, controls, organizations, government bodies, uh, you name it. It's all a very complex system that has given us the American landscape that we have now. (laughs) 
which has a lot of great parts and, you know, some things we need to work on, <laughs> especially now. And so, you know, it, I'd say if something like that happened in, you know, Kenya or Egypt and wiped out that much of a city. <laughs> You're talking about Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Uh, the entire city would have been built, uh, rebuilt, uh, probably within like two months. Okay. We know I was just down there in, uh, November and it's pretty extraordinary how still, um, completely, you know, empty and how slowly it takes to make things happen there. But obviously there's lots of different reasons for that in different contexts, but I think it is interesting this sort of balance or negotiation between sort of the top-down sort of systematic structures that we in the developed world have sort of taken hold of that makes us modern, that makes us developed and all those kind of things versus <laughs> honestly, I find a kind of freeness and richness within urban environments uh, because there is it's sort of, it's not a freedom, but there's a place where people are participating sort of truly in their urban environment. Uh, not that they necessarily want to. They don't have a choice, really, in most cases to do that. So, But I think it yields a lot of interesting results um, that can tell us a lot of things also here. You're listening to University of California and listener-sponsored KALX Berkeley 90.7. We're speaking with Luke Perry, an architecture graduate student who just came back from a Brainer Fellowship traveling the world and studying incremental housing, or housing built little by little, sometimes haphazardly as people are able to. Now, Luke... Who owns incremental housing? If it's set up in sort of a formal structure, which it totally can be, I mean, my interest is can you design it to be to happen incrementally, which I think is actually kind of a, a pretty interesting creative um, endeavor for an architect. Like how do you set up the rules of the game and then let them go, and, and where do people fit into that, and how do they then have more sort of uh, involvement and capacity in that process? So – who owns it? I, you know, it could be owned by the people themselves. Um, this isn't just for poor people, you know, I, actually coming back to the U.S. I'm like, wow, this is like middle class potential here. You know, we, we, we're living beyond our means. So it could, you know, the state could own the land. Um, and often cases when they're doing a, a upgrading projects, people may have been living on state owned land. So they have the land and the state will be exercising an upgrading project that may or may not be incremental. Um, many cases, it's a pretty common approach actually to deal with sort of um, slum-like squatter settlements, those kind of things. But in other cases, though, they don't. You know, people do it themselves. So the amazing thing about a lot of these places is how much people upgrade on their own, even though they don't own the land. And so, what ends up happening lots is that the more they invest, in many cases the more difficult it is for them to eventually lose that housing along the way. And some of these neighborhoods that start out like that have sort of become middle and upper class, sort of wealthier places. Yeah, there's a lot of examples in um, in, in Brazil like that. Uh, I mean, one interesting project in Kenya that was, was in a slum, they were upgrading it, but it, it was partnered with an NGO, and they did not own the land. But the purpose of going through this exercise was to make sure they got security of tenure, got the land, and then had sort of, you know, because once if people don't have the land, there's always the other side is that they don't, if they're always fearful of having their home destroyed, it's more difficult to invest in it. But on the flip side, people that go ahead and do it, uh, actually it can use that as a way to sort of ensure, you know, in some places have laws that protect them after, you know, in, in Turkey, if it's, if it used to be, if you could get it done in a night, that, that was yours. But in this particular project in Kenya, they were actually able to use the design process 
to kind of agitate for their land by saying, look, we've already done all this work. Uh, they were working very intensely with the community. We've came to the, all these agreements, X, Y, and Z, and um, we can't not do this if we don't have security of tenure. And here's our designs. Here are our plans. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the public space. All these kind of things, and they got it. You know, Did they have architects helping them through. Absolutely, this absolutely, and that was the that was the best part, and kind of one of the things that you know, kind of got me excited about architecture again. <laughs> you go through the world, and you go to architecture school, and you know everybody wants to do good, everybody wants to change the world. You know, architecture is a service, and we've got tons of amazing skills in the built environments everywhere. But you know, once you get out there in the reality of trying to work through everything and get a job and do all that kind of stuff, you grow up, you kind of lose some of your ideals and those kind of things. It becomes really hard to stay, stick true to what you imagined and dreamed what it was you would be doing when you got into this profession. So I found it actually quite extraordinary how many architects around the world are down and dirty on the ground, like doing the good stuff. And, this this project in Kenya I was telling you about, I met one, he was the, one of the most extraordinary people I met all year, and he was an architect, but he he understood everything about all the, like, how do you build in capacity and sustainability into the communities so that they're making the decisions themselves, but you got to have an NGO partnering with it, but where in that process are you leveraging too much, too much power, too much control, and where does all this intersections happen with the design and architecture of the place, and they were building in training for people uh, in terms of, you know, building the homes, each resident, not each one, but a lot of residents were being trained within the process. And architecture was, and the architect were central players in this whole process. And they had to be so much more than just an architect within that process. That's really interesting because here we oftentimes think of architecture as an elite profession or only for people who can afford an architect. And in this case, you're looking at the flip side of this. Yeah, well, this guy was like, hey, so, Luke, here's the deal, you know. Architects originally, um, who do they serve? Who do they work for? Well, they work for gods. Okay, well, who was after that? Well, uh, they worked for governments, okay? You think 40s and 50s, we had a lot of big monumentality and, you know, a mix of that. He's like, now, or at least in the last 30, 40 years, it's been for rich people. If you look around, especially the last few years when the global economy's just been going gangbusters, architects have been having some fun. Meanwhile, everybody's on the bottom side. They got to live their lives. Everybody, you know, housing is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to change or anything. So people, they've just under the radar screen. There's been just tons of amazing people doing work, but you don't hear about it much. And 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 yeah, it's it's architecture very much is a profession for people that can afford it. And that's you know everybody deserves good design, a nice quality space, and places they can feel feel good and be in as well, serving some basic needs in the process. Luke, can you talk about how you gained access to areas that maybe weren't designed by architects or to areas where you didn't fit in? The Favelas of Rio, for instance, how did you get in? Well, I've pretty much fit in everywhere I went. <laughs> yeah, six-foot-something red bed. Yeah, okay. It was a mix of things. Some places I had contacts to other people along the way. Uh, my father's been very involved in international sort of development health issues friends of friends you know you you, you kind of blow open your network and it's actually quite amazing how interconnected everybody is in the world right now uh, and sometimes you got to beat the ground hard and this person lead another person another person sometimes it's research uh, sometimes you just go and once i started wandering a little bit i realized this isn't 
that bad. It's not that hard. It's not really that scary. And wow, people are actually kind of excited to have me here, generally speaking. Uh, sure, surely there were a number of places where I was much closer to probably uh, losing my wallet or something like that. But uh, uh, un- unconditionally across the board, the most gracious sort of hosting wonderful people were in the poorest cities and what many people would co- consider some of the roughest ones. Uh, and and in Mumbai, we were we spent a week in Dharavi, which is the largest slum there. It's about eight hundred thousand to a million people, and there was actually a design workshop going on while we were there. So that was a great way to get in and get to know residents and speak with them, as well as address a lot of issues because there's a, a new redevelopment plan happening happening there, basically to activate some of that valuable land, which some people say is worth almost ten billion dollars. So in that case, it was a suburb originally in Mumbai. It's just grown so much. It's right now next to um, sort of the highest value real estate of office parks, IT companies, and that kind of thing. So as they say they care about proving the quality of life for these people, it just conveniently happens to have come when, you know, the land becomes incredibly valuable. So we spent there trying to understand the quality of the space, the people, the history, and the context, and um, – you know, what are some solutions that people would like to see happen, but with an understanding that development's going to happen and how do you manage that? It was a mix. I think I was lucky. Actually, being a tall, white gringo with red hair probably with helped me. <laughs> with a southern accent. People were actually really proud and excited to have somebody interested in not only their community, but their homes. You know, homes are a very personal thing, and sometimes it was hard to negotiate that realm, but... Usually when it came down to it, they're like, come right in. In fact, most of them were putting food in front of me, and, you know, it, it was tough. <laughs> You're listening to University of California and listener-sponsored KALX Berkeley 90.7. This is The Graduates, a show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. I'm your host, Emily Ellers, and today we're speaking with Luke Perry, a graduate student in the architecture department who just returned from a year traveling the world for school under the Brainer Fellowship and studying incremental housing or housing built little by little as people are able to. Now, Luke, what surprised you the most? I mean, on a, on a just sort of experiential level, I was actually really surprised with uh, just about everybody in the world dresses better than I do, <laughs> even the poorest of the poor in the dirtiest uh, places. So, I mean, there's a there's a pride and ownership, and you really cannot tell people apart depending on where they live and what conditions they're in. And uh, it was pretty humbling in that context. But one place that kind of blew my mind open was Cairo in Egypt. Uh, great, I'll go see the pyramids. And I had some people say I needed to go there and check it out. I had no idea what they were talking about. But to me, uh, it sort of represented kind of a lot of what I was sort of looking at. Uh, in many ways, it is, you know, it's 17, 18 million people in the city now. It's it's dirty. It's chaotic. It's It feels out of control. You know, it's massive. It's hot. Uh, the pollution is just... I'm like looking out my window. I'm like, oh my gosh, where's that fire? You know, and I'm like, oh no, that's just the air. But there were so many places where the environment had been transformed by by people, just everyday people. And one one of the scholars there describes it as quiet encroachment, um, which I thought is a great way to talk about it. Because in the in the, in, the, in, the, in the center of the city, you have sort of apartment buildings that people have sort of you know adapted they've changed they've enclosed balconies they've painted they've built on things to the side um you have public housing projects where people have 
you know, they've doubled their own size because like, they've built off extensions and cantilevers and all these other spaces. They've, you know, busted holes in the roof and, you know, added vertical spaces. So the city is like this. It has a form to it that is so fundamentally different and almost unprescribed like the tops of buildings. There are no tops of buildings anymore because there's little huts and little houses sort of piled up on top of it. So you get this kind of rough kind of edge. Even in the downtown business areas? Yeah, absolutely. And there are those, but, you know, like any city, especially these areas, you've got these crazy, like, juxtapositions because right next to the Ramsey's Hilton, right on the Nile, is this is this slum called Bulak, which looks like a bomb hit it. It, it really does. and And nobody would ever go in there and... And I decided to go in there, and it was fantastic. You know, I played soccer in the streets, took pictures of every. You know, if you got kids and you got a camera, you're pretty much good to go. <laughs> yeah, they had ping pong going on, and and you know, people were warm and friendly, and and but the environment was like houses were literally crumbling everywhere, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and some that are laws that say you can't kick people out if you own a building unless it basically is demo if unless it basically you know crumbles or falls down so in some ways there's protection there but on the flip side it, it sort of creates a weird environment and how many incremental houses fit together can you talk about the larger neighborhood or the larger social fabric how do these houses relate to that I was looking at incremental housing, but I was also trying to understand sort of people's involvement in the urban context and the urban environment and the conditions that set that up. So I also spent time in Kibera, which is in Nairobi, which is actually a very large slum there. But it is not incremental at all. It's very static. It's all one room, sort of one-story shacks out of mud and that kind of thing, uh, which a lot of other people own and rent out those spaces for actually a lot of money and everything costs a lot there. So, but there's, there were a lot of interesting projects going on there in terms of how you deal with other parts of the home or those conditions that affect the home drastically, such as, you know, bathrooms, you know, they were building some pretty interesting biogas, um, toilets, community toilets. Um, there's a great group from Harvard that's linked up with folks there to do a public space project. there, basically trying to figure out how you can, reduce the waste coming down the the creek running through there is basically the sewage and the waste and the trash can. But how can you reduce that, generate income through like composting activities that could create employment that could also increase and, and fix the the environment there as well as actively engage more people in the process of taking much more ownership over their community and place like that. So incremental housing was my focus, but it was more of a conduit to get out a lot of other issues that I was interested in. Can you speak about resistance to incremental housing? If people are building on land that they don't own, what happens? Well, you know, it's a mix of stuff. And I guess when you ask about resistance to incremental housing, uh, you know, instantly I was sort of thinking about sort of aesthetic issues, sort of temporality, what a lot of the aesthetic connotations are of these neighborhoods and places. Because when you look at a lot of these neighborhoods, you know, it's just like, oh, my Lord. This is unbelievably horrible, right? And what's interesting, a lot of these places, you know, we've kind of gone through this in our country, you know, with industrialization and the growth of cities and a lot of the challenges that they faced within that. And in a weird way, a lot of housing reformers tried to tackle sort of poverty and ills through through housing and sort of the the idea of fixed space and sort of all these rules and regulations and codes as to what housing can and should be. And, and, you know, it, it has helped a lot, but 
it has lost a lot in that process as well. And I think there's a, a, a much greater negotiation exploration in terms of how people can have more flexibility and ownership in their home and dwelling environment, but also bringing in the more professional component to get sort of the major things right that absolutely have to get right. And like what, like the basic infrastructure? Yeah, infrastructure, but, you know, obviously getting security of tenure and land issues taken care of. So, I mean, it, you got to work with the state and government and um, as well as planning and, you know, design professionals. And it, it can be done in a way that really works for people. Uh, but a lot of it really depends on communities being organized. I mean, there is a fantastic project in Chile they basically took 100 families who had been squatting on some land, and it took some work to get their trust, but it, it, it happened also because this community was organized, and, and the leader actually blocked the president of Chile. He was in town, and he, she blocked the path to his helicopter and said, you need to fix this. And a couple of other factors happened, and these architects uh, from Santiago and the Universidad de la Católica showed up. And it just happened to be a good fit, but basically they, they retook, they kept all the families there and established solid public space, open space. Um, they, they basically were like, we only have money for half of a house, so which house are we going to, which, which half do we design? So they, they basically, they designed kitchen, a bathroom, a living room, and I think a bedroom. But they also were very architects from the school, or yeah, the people? yeah. Okay. But they worked very closely with the community. Say, all right, this is cool. You know, what kind of things are you looking for? So they basically came to a half of a house, which you know, Delphi's structure is not going to fall down. It would withstand earthquakes, and this is northern Chile. It dealt with um, the basic infrastructure, such as plumbing and water. It it had a, a kitchen, but it could also serve. It had a capacity to serve two or three more rooms in the future for greater demand and that kind of thing. And it defined, it clearly defined the framework in which people could build. And so basically people, after the half is done, they said, all right, it's up to you to finish this. There were some few minimal rules about where, you know, under, under what context you had to, had to stay, say, constrained into. It ended up being like this incredible richness and variety within the housing because everybody did it differently and everybody did it at a different time. So you go there now and it's like, it kind of looks like a steel under construction, which I think fundamentally is something that we just can't deal with. You know, people always like, well, why are those, you know, you go anywhere and there's like rebar sticking up out of every building and like, oh my God. Oh, well, it's those tax reasons, you know, because, well, you don't have to pay taxes. Your bill is not finished. I mean, I heard that a lot. I don't think it's true in every case, but it's just the reality that not only people live, but, you know, developers, half of those are developers who bit off more than they can chew. Luke, where do you want to take the incremental housing project? Or how does that inform you here back in California? I uh, returned to the U.S. in uh, November. I had always been interested in the context here in the U.S. I had spent a lot of time uh, doing work around affordable housing and homelessness here in the U.S., and I I really struggled to understand how so many people could not access basic housing. And of course, I'm interested from a design standpoint. And so I sort of came into this incremental housing thing. And little did I know that when I would return, this housing crisis, foreclosure crisis, you name it, has just been hitting this country really hard. And it and it actually gets to a lot of what I think is 
is is a bit of a challenge. You know, one of the great lessons that people around the world show me is that most of them live fairly well within their means. And it doesn't mean that they have to live small and don't have a place, you know, have to live in a minimal place, but they start small. They have aspirations and their house can grow and it can get bigger and they can advance and do the modern thing if but it's difficult. So I'm actually interested in kind of re- rethinking some of our housing models and typologies and looking at how you can think about housing that starts smaller and then grows and adapts in this country in this context, but mainly as a way to make it more affordable, to engage people more in the in the context of building in their communities. Uh, and I have a thesis project to do. You can't just go and wander and have fun and not take pictures. Yeah. Yeah. But myself and another student who is on the fellowship will be uh, looking at a probably an area in Stockton, which is a very high rate of foreclosures, and and uh, looking at how how can you actually rethink the suburbs, densify, and what are you going to do with all these vacant houses? And I'm particularly interested in the idea of indeterminacy and the uh, sort of unfinished notions of home, and how can people actually finish them on after themselves? Because you, you, there's an interesting scenario setting up where, in a lot of cases, it's the available housing, and so. There are shifts now of sort of poor, more vulnerable populations heading out in the suburbs and occupying this housing. And it's it's not set up and it has a lot of potential red flags in terms of what has happened in the past in inner cities when the demographics shifted and the cities were abandoned. So I think it's an exciting time to think about this stuff. It's very pertinent. And I think that there's a lot of great lessons floating out there in the world that we need to kind of open up a little bit and think much more about. So architects have a role to play in incremental housing. It's not strictly architecture without architects. No, it's not. And while I was absolutely blown away by how people build without any architects, there are are architects everywhere. They're just not called architects. They're not professions. They're not professionals. Um, They're doing it. But there are some realms that we need to be absolutely involved in but not by, not too much. There's being discerning exactly where the best place to insert sort of your skills and ideas and approaches and knowing where to leave and let other people exercise that realm is, I think, sort of the critical question. Awesome. Anything else you want to add? Uh, how freaking amazing <laughs> <laughs> this is that um, Berkeley and particularly the architecture department offers this fellowship. Uh, fundamentally, anywhere I went, it didn't matter where it was, even in, within the best sort of architecture programs in the world. Nobody could really believe or fathom that I had this opportunity to kind of go and look at what I wanted to in this context. And not to, not not even to mention um, visiting a lot of places that I did visit. So it's, uh, it's I think, one of those just um, things that make a place like Berkeley uh, and Cal just quite extraordinary and amazing for what it is. And if people want to hear more about your travels, where can they go? Yeah, we're, we're actually uh, giving a lecture on February 4th at 7 p.m. in Worcester Hall, which is the architecture building. Uh, there'll be an exhibit that the, the, there's, there's three of us this year that went, so there'll be an exhibit at opening that night as well. Um, I've also been chronicling a lot of my travels and thoughts on the blog, which is uh, incrementalhouse.blogspot.com. 
You're tuned to The Graduates on Berkeley Student Radio. Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. Now, you've been speaking about incremental housing. If people want to learn more about incremental housing around the world, where should they go? We're actually giving a lecture on February 4th at 7 p.m. in Worcester Hall, which is the architecture building. There's three of us this year that went, so there'll be an exhibit opening that night as well. I've also been chronicling a lot of my travels and thoughts on the blog, which is incrementalhouse.blogspot.com. Wonderful. Thanks, Luke. We've been speaking with Luke Perry, a graduate student in the architecture department on incremental housing around the world. My name is Emily Ellers. I'm your host on The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. The show airs every Monday from 12 until 1230. Thanks for joining us. If you have any comments or ideas for future guests, please don't hesitate. Shoot me an email at graduates dot k-a-l-x at gmail.com again that's graduates dot k-a-l-x at gmail.com thanks for joining me and stay tuned next week when nathan mcclintock a graduate student in the geography department discusses urban agriculture in oakland california